Chapter 17 The Rape of the Fleece The Quest of the Silver Fleece by W. E. B. Du Bois Recorded by A. J. Hilton This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When slowly from the torpor of ether one wakens to the misty sense of eternal loss, and there comes the exquisite prick of pain, then one feels in part the horror of the ache when Zora wakened to the world again. The awakening was the work of days and weeks. At first in sheer exhaustion, physical and mental, she lay and moaned. The sense of loss, of utter loss, lay heavy upon her. Something of herself, something dearer than self, was gone from her forever, and an infinite loneliness and silence, as of endless years, settled on her soul. She wished neither food nor words, only to be alone. Then gradually the pain of injury stung her when the blood flowed fuller. As Miss Smith knelt beside her one night to make her simple prayer, Zora sat suddenly upright, white-swathed, disheveled, with fury in her midnight eyes. I want no prayers, she cried. I will not pray. He is no god of mine. He isn't fair. He knows and won't tell. He takes advantage of us. He works and fools us. All night Miss Smith heard mutterings of this bitterness, and the next day the girl walked her room like a tigress, to and fro, to and fro, all the long day. Toward night a dumb despair settled upon her. Miss Smith found her sitting by the window, gazing blankly toward the swamp. She came to Miss Smith slowly, and put her hands upon her shoulders with almost a caress. You must forgive me, she pleaded plaintively. I reckon I've been mighty bad with you, and you always so good to me, but, but you see, it hurts so. I know it hurts, dear, I know it does, but men and women must learn to bear their hurts in this world. Not hurts like this. They couldn't. Yes, even hurts like this. Bear and stand straight. Be brave. After all, Zora, no man is quite worth a woman's soul. No love is worth a whole life. Zora turned away with a gesture of impatience. You were born an ice, she retorted, adding a bit more tenderly. In clear, strong ice, but I was born in fire. I live, I love, that's all. And she sat down again despairingly and stared at the dull swamp. Miss Smith stood for a moment and closed her eyes upon a vision. Ice, she whispered, my God. Then at length she said to Zora, Zora, there's only one way. Do something. If you sit thus brooding, you'll go crazy. Do crazy folks forget? Nonsense, Sora. Miss Smith ridiculed the girl's fantastic vagaries. Her sound common sense rallied to her aid. They are the people who remember. Sane folk forget. Work is the only cure for such pain. But there's nothing to do. Nothing I want to do. Nothing worth doing. Now. The silver fleece? The girl sat upright. The silver fleece, she murmured. Without further words, slowly she arose and walked down the stairs and out into the swamp. Miss Smith watched her go. She knew that every step must be the keen prickle of awakening flesh, yet the girl walked steadily on. It was the Christmas, not Christmas tide of the north and west, but Christmas of the southern south. It was not the festival of the Christ child, but a time of noise and frolic and license 
the great payday of the year when black men lifted their heads from the years toiling in the earth and hat in hand asked anxiously master what have i earned have i paid my old debts to you have i made my clothes and food have i got a little of the year's wage coming to me or more carelessly and cringingly master give me a christmas gift the lords of the soil stood round gauging their cotton measuring their men their stores were crowded their scales groaned their gin sang in the long run public opinion determines all wage but in more primitive times and places private opinion personal judgment of some man in power determines the black belt is primitive and the landlord wields the power what about johnson calls the head clerk well he's a faithful nigger and needs encouragement cancel his debt and give him ten dollars for christmas colonel cresswell glowed as if he were full of the season's spirit and saunders how's his cotton good and a lot of it he's trying to get away keep him in debt but let him draw what he wants aunt rachel hmm they're way behind aren't they give a couple of dollars not a cent more jim sykes say harry how about that darkest sykes called out the colonel excusing himself from his guests harry cresswell came into the office to them this peculiar spectacle of the market-place was of unusual interest they saw its humor and its crowding its bizarre effects and unwanted pageantry black giants and pygmies were there kerchiefed aunties giggling black girls saffron beauties and loafing white men there were mules and horses and oxen wagons and buggies and carts but above all and in all rushing through hiled and flying bound and bailed was cotton cotton was currency cotton was merchandise cotton was conversation all this was beautiful to mrs gray and unusually interesting to mrs vanderpool to mary taylor it had the fascination of a puzzle whose other side she had already been partially studying she was particularly impressed with the joy and abandon of the scene light laughter huge guffaws handshakes and gossipings at all events she concluded this is no oppressed people and sauntering away from the rest she noted the smiles of an undersized smirking yellow man who hurried by with a handful of dollar bills at a side entrance liquor was evidently on sale men were drinking and women too some were staggering others cursing and yet others singing then suddenly a man swung around the corner swearing in bitter rage the damn thieves they stole a year's work the white but someone called hush up saunders there's a white woman there's a white woman and he threw a startled look at mary and hurried by she was perplexed and upset and stood hesitating a moment when she heard a well-known voice why miss taylor how was alarm for you you really must be careful about trusting yourself with these half-drunken negras wouldn't it be better not to give them drink mr cresswell and let your neighbor sell them poison at all hours no miss taylor they joined the others and all were turning toward the carriage when a figure coming down the road attracted them quite picturesque observed mrs vanderpool looking at the tall slim girl swaying toward them with a piled basket of white cotton poised lightly on her head why in abrupt recognition it is our venus of the roadside is it not mary saw it was zora just then too zora caught sight of them and for a moment hesitated then came on 
The carriage was in front of the store, and she was bound for the store. A moment Mary hesitated too, and then turned resolutely to greet her. But Zora's eyes did not see her. After one look at that sorrow-stricken face, Mary turned away. Colonel Cresswell stood by the door, his hat on, his hands in his pockets. "'Well, Zora, what have you there?' he asked. "'Cotton, sir!' Harry Cresswell bent over it. "'Great heavens! Look at this cotton!' he ejaculated. His father approached. The cotton lay in silken handfuls, clean and shimmering, with threads full two inches long. The idlers, black and white, clustered round, gazing at it and fingering it with repeated exclamations of astonishment. "'Where did this come from?' asked the colonel sharply. He and Harry were both eyeing the girl intently. "'I raised it in the swamp,' Zoe replied quietly, in a dead voice. There was no pride of achievement in her manner, no gladness. All that had flown. "'Is that all?' "'No, sir. I think there's two bales.' Two bales? Where is it? How the devil?' The colonel was forgetting his guests, but Harry intervened. "'You'll need to get it picked right off,' he suggested. "'It's all picked, sir.' "'But where is it?' "'If you send a wagon, sir.' But the colonel hardly waited. "'Hell, you, Jim, take the big mules and drive like—' "'Where's that winch?' But Zora was already striding on ahead and was far up the red road when the great mules galloped into sight and the long whip snapped above their backs. The colonel was still excited. "'That cotton must be ours, Harry, all of it, and see that none is stolen. We've got no contract with the winch, so don't dally with her.' But Harry said firmly, quietly, "'It's fine cotton, and she raised it. She must be paid well for it.' Colonel Cresswell glanced at him with something between contempt and astonishment on his face. "'You go along with the ladies,' Harry added. "'I'll see to this cotton.' Mary Taylor's smile had rewarded him. Now he must get rid of his company before Zora returned. It was dark when the cotton came. Such a load as Cresswell's store had never seen before. Zora watched it weighed, received the cotton checks, and entered the store. Only the clerk was there, and he was closing. He pointed her carelessly to the office in the back part. She went into the small dim room and, laying the cotton check on the desk, stood waiting. Slowly, the hopelessness and bitterness of it all came back in a great whelming flood. What was the use of trying for anything? She was lost forever. The world was against her, and again she saw the fingers of Elspeth, the long black claw-like talons that clutched and dragged her down, down. She did not struggle. She dropped her hands listlessly, warily, and stood but half-conscious as the door opened and Mr. Harry Cresswell entered the dimly lighted room. She opened her eyes. She had expected his father. Somewhere way down in the depths of her nature, the primal tiger awoke and snarled. She was suddenly alive from hair to fingertip. Harry Cresswell paused a second and swept her full length with his eye, her profile, the long, supple line of bosom and hip, the little foot. Then he closed the door softly and walked slowly toward her. She stood like stone without a quiver. Only her eye followed the crooked line of the Cresswell blue blood on his marble forehead as she looked down from her greater height. Her hand closed almost caressingly on a rusty poker lying on the stove nearby. And as she sensed the hot breath of him, she felt herself purring in a half-heard whisper. I should not like to kill you. 
He looked at her long and steadily as he passed to his desk. Slowly he lighted a cigarette, opened the great ledger, and compared the cotton check with it. Three thousand pounds, he announced in a careless tone. Yes, that will make about two bales of lint. It's extra cotton, say fifteen cents a pound, one hundred and fifty dollars, seventy-five dollars to you. Hmm. He took a notebook out of his pocket, pushed his hat back on his head, and paused to relight his cigarette. Let's see. Yo, rent and rations. Elspeth pays no rent, she said slowly, but he did not seem to hear. Yo, rent and rations with the five years back debt, he made a hasty calculation, will be one hundred dollars. That leaves you twenty-five in our debt. Here's your receipt. The blow had fallen. She did not wince nor cry out. She took the receipt calmly and walked out into the darkness. They had stolen the silver fleece. What should she do? She never thought of appeal to courts, for Colonel Cresswell was justice of the peace and his son was bailiff. Why had they stolen from her? She knew. She was now penniless and, in a sense, helpless. She was now a peon bound to a master's bidding. If Elspeth chose to sign a contract of work for her tomorrow, it would mean slavery, jail, or hounded running away. What would Elspeth do? One never knew. Zora walked on. An hour ago it seemed that this last blow must have killed her, but now it was different. Into her first despair had crept, in one fierce moment, grim determination. Somewhere in the world sat a great dim injustice that had veiled the light before her young eyes. Just as she raised them to the morning, with the veiling, death had come into her heart. And yet, they should not kill her. They should not enslave her. A desperate resolve to find some way up toward the light, if not to it, formed itself within her. She would not fall into the pit opening before her. Somehow, somewhere, lay the way. She must never fall lower, never be utterly despicable in the eyes of the man she had loved. There was no dream of forgiveness, of purification, of rekindled love. All these she placed sadly and gently into the dead past, but in awful earnestness she turned toward the future, struggling blindly, groping in half-formed plans for a way. She came thus into the room where sat Miss Smith, strangely pallid beneath her dusky skin, but there lay a light in her eyes. End of chapter 17